It has been reported that up to 75% of Medicare patients who sustain vascular-related major lower limb amputations will die within five years post-amputation. Previous studies have examined various factors influencing mortality rates at one in five years post-amputation, and mortality has been shown to vary depending on amputation level, population demographics, and geography. Lower limb prosthesis users are assigned Medicare functional classification levels, that is K-levels, at prosthetic evaluations. Higher K-level patients tend to ambulate faster and have lower comorbidity index scores. However, to date, no known studies have examined K-level classification as a mortality indicator. Hi everyone, I'd like to welcome you to episode 24 of ONP Research Insights presented by the American Academy of Orthodox and Prosthetists. And yes, you heard me correctly, this is episode 24. We've been at this for two years now, so I'd like to thank everyone for listening into our podcast. I'm Dr. Steve Gard, Editor-in-Chief for the Journal of Prosthetics and Orthotics. My guest today is Mr. Max Kruger, MPO-CPO. Mr. Kruger is an ABC Certified Prosthetist Orthodist who received his Master's in Prosthetics and Orthotics from Northwestern University in 2017. He graduated summa cum laude from Aurora University in 2015, where he received his Bachelor of Arts in Biology, and he also holds an Associate of Arts and Associate of Science degree from William Rainey Harper College. In 2019, he became the first ever recipient of the Outstanding Recent Alumni Award from William Rainey Harper College. Mr. Kruger is a member of Omicron Delta Kappa, a National Leadership Honor Society. He worked as a digital manufacturing lab resident at Advanced O&P Solutions, where he was a contributing author and editor for the Gavin Scoliosis Program Certification course. Additionally, he performed time studies comparing digital and traditional fabrication processes for custom-fabricated prosthetic and orthotic devices. Mr. Kruger completed his orthotic and prosthetic residency at Check and Cyrus, now Hanger Clinic, in the Chicagoland area. In 2021, his residency research project titled Mortality After Non-Traumatic Major Lower Limb Amputations in Medicare Patients at a Large Metropolitan Prosthetic Facility was selected for publication by the American Academy of Orthodox and Prosthetists for Best of Resident Directed Studies. Mr. Kruger's research interests include prosthetic biomechanics, 3D printing, and material science. His capstone project investigated the theoretical utilization of shock absorbing components in patients with osseointegrated prostheses. Mr. Kruger has given presentations to local middle schools about his use of 3D printing and its application in the field of O&P. He was also asked to speak alongside author and Boston Marathon bombing survivor, Roseanne Sodia, at Harper College's Adaptive Sports Day to raise general awareness regarding adaptive sports and to promote physical activity for everyone. Further, Mr. Kruger has served on the Aurora University Professional Alumni Panel to speak about the field of O&P to college undergraduates, allowing them to converse with alumni in STEM fields. In 2020, at the peak of the COVID epidemic, he made the difficult decision to take a sabbatical from the field of O&P 
and pursue a career in cybersecurity and information technology. Today, we will be discussing a recent article that Mr. Kruger published in JPO entitled, Mortality After Non-Traumatic Major Lower Limb Amputations in Medicare Patients at a Large Metropolitan Prosthetic Facility. Welcome to the podcast, Max. Thank you very much for having me. And before we get started here, jumping into the article, I want to thank you, too, for being an advocate for the OMP profession, <laughs> speaking to the student groups and speaking in general about the profession. That is much needed. Absolutely. So let's jump into the article at this point. And let me start out by asking, why does this topic interest you? So it's funny. Initially, my research was actually going to be geared towards some sort of technology, something along the lines of integrating a step counter and a prosthesis. That idea fell to the side. And over time in my residency, I had heard from a few practitioners that, from my residency mentor in particular, that they had access to a large data set. It was a set of patient evaluation data that had been exported recently. And it wasn't until I actually got a chance to lay my eyes on the data that I became curious what we could find exactly. We see so many patients on a daily basis, but you don't always get to know what happens to them after your treatment. So this helped to serve as a possible conclusion to that unknown. And so what was the motivation for this study? When I was in graduate school and as well as during residency, you would hear that patients with vascular-related amputations were likely to die within five years after their amputation. It almost started to become this mantra. You would just hear it over and over again. And based on previous observations, the practitioners that I had worked with were adamant that a large number of patients that they had worked with were living past five years, or they were living to this five-year mark that everyone was talking about. So the data set that I had mentioned earlier had yet to be scrubbed and cleaned and investigated. So it was the perfect opportunity to see if their observations were correct. So what was the purpose of your study? There were ultimately two objectives. The first purpose of the study was to investigate mortality rates and demographics of patients with major non-traumatic lower limb amputations in the greater Chicago area. A second, secondary objective was to examine comorbidities reported within the literature, as well as how a patient's K-level contributes to the observed mortality rates. And what did you expect to find through this investigation? That's the interesting thing. Going in, I did have some assumptions, such as seeing a greater number of deaths for higher amputation levels, for example, transhemorrhoid versus transtibial. I also expected that patients with a greater quantity of comorbid conditions that were listed on the evaluation forms were more likely to die. In terms of the actual mortality rates, I was familiar with the percentages reported in other studies just from the initial research that I've been doing, but I still didn't know what to expect with our own numbers. You could call it wishful thinking, but I think I was hoping that the mortality rates would be lower than what was reported. And so how did you go about collecting your data? So in the clinic, we had a proprietary software tool for patient note-taking and essentially data collection uh, called VOPA. It was the Virtual Orthotic and Prosthetic Assistant. When you filled out this form, that information would be imported into, and I'm sure listeners and readers are familiar with it, but future of practice management. So it's a, an electronic medical record platform specific to the field of prosthetics and orthotics. The information that was taken from Futura and exported was just a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet 
that contained data for 2,833 patients. It was all lower limb prosthetic evaluation notes coming from June of 2014 to February of 2019. The data, it, it contained patient demographic information. So you're talking things like age, sex, race, as well as information pertaining to their amputation. So their amputation side, the level of amputation, the cause. But what's particularly interesting about the information is that VOPA allows practitioners to check boxes for commonly encountered health conditions, which unless stated within the physician records, they're self-reported by the patient or their family members or their caretakers during these evaluation appointments. And it's an extensive list. It's an extensive list of conditions that you have diabetes mellitus and stage renal disease, back pain, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. It's a very long list of items. But you also had an option at the, the very end of the list for an other option. And this other option is for an unlisted comorbidity or comorbidities that allows the practitioner to elaborate within a text field. They can go into greater detail about what they might have. Maybe you have some sort of outstanding condition that doesn't fall into one of these categories. And so did you apply any inclusion exclusion criteria beyond those you've already mentioned? Absolutely. So the exclusion criteria, it was actually easier to identify reasons not to include patients versus to include. That list actually came first. So the exclusion criteria was minor amputations, toe amputations, transvatatarsal, Liz Frank, Chopart, Symes, all out, exclude those. Amputation etiologies that were related to trauma, cancer, or for congenital reasons, those were also excluded. You had low-frequency comorbid conditions. Those were excluded from the binary logistic regression model. This was to prevent outlier influence. The more conditions that you start to introduce into the model, the stranger results that you can get where you might have an emphasis placed on a condition that you know might be in the minority. The conditions, though, included just from that extensive comorbidity list, high cholesterol, cancer or history of cancer, defibrillator and pacemaker, rheumatoid arthritis, vision problems, osteoarthritis, joint pain, back pain, as well as COPD. I also had to exclude entries that had vague or no recorded amputation information. You really can't do much with that. This is an amputation-related study. If the information isn't there, you can't do anything with it. Duplicate evaluation entries, sometimes that was, was the result of, like, it's hard to really say if it was practitioner-specific or if it was just a, an error in the system re-uploading the information. So those entries were removed. Uh, I also excluded patients with private insurance or that were self-pay. And this was due to restricted access to private insurance databases. And because I wasn't able to access those, you don't know if there's a confirmation of a, a date of death. There were a few races that had to be removed just from the demographic information for that five-year logistic regression model. The model was for age, race, and amputation level. And it was purely due to just incredibly small sample sizes. Asian, Indian, as well as a what was listed as unspecified race, those had to be removed just because there was a, such a small amount of them. For the inclusion criteria, it's going to sound relatively simple. Medicare-eligible patients, because this allowed for the referencing of the Medicare database, which is called MyCGS, they record a date of death for the patient. The other criteria was patients that have had a major lower limb vascular-related amputation. And how did you go about analyzing all of these data? So each comorbid condition was given a value of one to tally the frequency of conditions. 
There was this one kind of caveat here, though, for end-stage renal disease. So if a patient was marked as having both end-stage renal disease and kidney disease, well, that's redundant. If you have end-stage renal disease, you certainly have kidney disease. On this instance, if end-stage renal disease was encountered, that was given a value of one and kidney disease was given a value of zero simply to prevent miscalculations. You don't want to add a greater number and emphasis on a specific comorbid condition when it's redundant. Heart condition was defined as myocardial infarction, atrial fibrillation, coronary artery disease, congestive heart failure, and open heart surgery of any kind. So it's a, a large grouping of conditions. After the comorbid conditions were recorded, though, the frequency of the conditions was assessed to determine which ones to include in the statistical models. The low frequency conditions were excluded from the model, again, just to prevent outlier influence covariate conditions. The patient height and weight is typically self-reported verbally at appointments, either by the patient or again, their caretaker. However, depending on the clinic and just based on my own observations at the time, tools would sometimes be used to gather this information. And unfortunately, the evaluation data does not specify if or even what kind of measurement tools were used in individual clinics. Each one functions as its own island in a sense. For example, there was no way of knowing, did they use a scale or did they use a simple measuring tape for capturing their height? That information just wasn't there. Knowing the patient's height and weight was important as it would allow for the calculation of a patient's body mass index called a BMI. And by calculating the BMI, we could get a rating to know whether or not a patient is obese. And without that calculation, there was a chance of having BMI underreported or obesity underreported. It's a relatively simple calculation. The BMI is just equal to 703 times the weight in pounds divided by their height in inches squared. So for a patient weight, if it was reported in kilograms, that was going to be converted round to the nearest pound. If their height was in centimeters, you would convert that round to the nearest inch. The patient K levels contained within the data set came from the treating prosthetist clinical evaluation. And generally, the K levels were assigned to patients based on the performance of the amputee mobility predictor no prosthesis called the AMP no pro or just the AMP. It's worth noting though that at the time of the writing, the AMP had been integrated into their clinical practice and their processes within roughly 10 years. And although the K level was explored, you couple that with the fact that this was based on AMP scores, the scores themselves were not considered due to the fact that not every patient within the data set had a baseline score to go off of. After my exclusion criteria was applied, the MyCGS database, again, which is for the Medicare records, that was accessed for each patient to acquire a date of death. If a date existed, that date was recorded within the spreadsheet. If no date of death was present, then the patient would be marked as alive. Following that, then the difference in the number of days post-amputation to their date of death, or what was referred to as their living status, quote unquote, that was used to calculate the number of days a patient had survived since their amputation. From there, I used a statistical software called SPSS by IBM. Uh, it was used to generate descriptive statistics, the binary logistic regression model, as well as a five-year Kaplan-Meier plot sometimes referred to as a survival curve or a survival plot. You'll often see these in mortality studies. A really interesting thing, though, that I did was made use of uh, a truth table function that was created in Excel. This was actually used to prevent 
including redundant patients into the five-year binary logistic regression model. Patients were included if they met one of the following criteria. You had number one, which is the time since their amputation was greater than or equal to five years. Okay, You would be included. If the time since the amputation was less than or equal to five years and the patient was deceased, they would be included. If the patient had less than five years and they were alive, they would not be included in the model. And the results would just be considered unreliable as we have no definitive basis regarding the outcome of the patient. Are they living? Had they died? We don't know. Once all the, the true table results were gathered, 230 patients were included in the logistic regression model for comorbidities, age, race, and amputation level at five years post-amputation. So that's how many patient medical records you ended up including in your study, 230? So that was only for the logistic regression model at five years. Again, that was to prevent the inclusion of the patients that we didn't know the outcome for. The total number was actually 502. And I got to say that it it was pretty startling to go from nearly 3,000 patient records, 2,833, to 502. I certainly expected to lose a lot of entries just from the exclusion criteria, the, the duplicates, the amputation etiology, the minor amputations, all those. But unfortunately, a significant loss was due to poor documentation. 524 records had to be removed. This is a bit unsettling just due to this particular reason alone. So what were the demographics of your participants? A majority of the sample was male. 65.5% were male. rest female, 34.5%. In terms of race, 46.6% were white, 32.9% African-American, 16.5% Latino, 1.4% 1.4% were Asian, 1.2% were Indian, and that unspecified category made up 1.4%. For amputation level, 76.5% made up transtibial, transfemoral made up 23.5%. For amputation etiology, infection made up a majority of reasons for it. It was 34.9%. Vascular was 31.1%. Gangrene was 18.7%. Peripheral vascular disease was 11.4%, and osteomyelitis was 3.8%. The mean age was 67.23, same deviation of 11.53, with a range of 70. And what was the breakdown of your sample by K level? The breakdown of the sample by K level, we had no K0s. There were no K0s reported in the sample. It's hard to say if they were just not reported or underreported, but they just did not exist. K1s made up 20.1% of the sample. K2s made up 49.6% of the sample. K3s made up 29.5% of the sample. And K4s made up a very small amount, 0.8% of the sample. Interesting. Mm-hmm. More K2s, I guess you would expect to have more K2s overall mm-hmm. than in exactly. any of the other groups. What were the major comorbid conditions in your study sample? Diabetes mellitus was 75.3%. Saw that in a a very significant portion of the sample. Hypertension was 60.6%. Heart condition was 34.1%. Obesity, which was reflective of the BMI calculation, was 29.1%. And phantom pain was 26.7%. So just a hair over a quarter of the entire sample. So what were some of the primary findings of your investigation? The overall mortality rates at one year was 33.6% 
And at five years, it was 73.59%. So nearly three quarters of the sample had died at five years. Examining the mortality by amputation level for one in five years, if you're just, again, you're looking at just the amputation level mortality rates alone. For transtibial at one year, it was 33.07%. At five years, it was 72.32%. If you looked at the mortality rates for transfemoral amputation at one year, it was 35.59%. And at five years, it was 77.78%. So just going by amputation level alone, the Latino patients were associated with an increased mortality and were 5.5 times more likely to die. However, at five years, race had no statistical significance. And surprisingly, amputation level had no statistical significance at one and five years post-amputation. So the patient age also was associated with a decreased mortality at one and five years post-amputation. Regarding comorbid conditions, at one year post-amputation, patients were 2.3 times more likely to die from end-stage renal disease. However, the association decreased at five years. Heart condition actually had the reverse relationship. It was decreased at one year, but an increase at five years. Patients with heart conditions at five years were 2.4 times more likely to die. Lastly, we had obesity and, and phantom pain. Those were associated with a decrease in mortality at five years post-amputation. Interesting. I like the way that you've got all these numbers right at your uh, fingertips, say right on the top of your head. <laughs> it's impressive. Thank you. <laughs> so overall, do your findings support or refute those of previous studies? Generally, the findings did support previous studies. The overall mortality rates, again, 33.6% at one year post-amputation and 73.59% at five years post-amputation. These values were within the ranges reported in the literature. 73.59% at that, that five-year, that was actually closer to the higher values that were reported in the literature. It's been a long time, but if I can remember off the top of my head, I believe it was anywhere between 75 and 80%. So we're leaning towards the higher end. The amputation level, as I said before, it was not statistically significant for mortality at both one and five years post-amputation. However, other studies have witnessed this phenomenon. Authors of these studies would hypothesize that it was not so much the amputation as it was the underlying factors that contributed to the amputation. In other words, the pre-morbid conditions, that is what ultimately led to the patient death. Regarding the comorbidities, end-stage renal disease and heart disease were significant when compared to other conditions. And from my initial research, these conditions are fairly common in amputation-related mortality studies. It only makes sense, too. These are debilitating systemic conditions. The results of the Kaplan-Meier plot were particularly interesting. They suggested that K3 individuals have a greater cumulative survival relative to K2s and K1s at five years post-amputation. Now, remember, with a Kaplan-Meier plot, you have what's called censoring. And I think a lot of times people hear that word, and if you're unfamiliar with statistics, you'll hear the word censoring and think, wait, you're censoring your data? Why are you doing that? Censoring, all that means is with a Kaplan-Meier plot, a survival plot, you are essentially looking to see, did the event of interest occur? In this case, the event of interest is death. So it can't be said for certain if those patients lived beyond five years because the data just isn't there. However, if you take the information from the Kaplan-Meier plot at face value, K3s 
had a greater cumulative survival relative to the K2s and K1s at five years. If you even follow the time since amputation for K2s and K1s, a majority of the time, particularly around year two post-amputation, you would see a cumulative survival of 0.8 for the K2s and roughly 0.62 for K1s. However, at the five-year mark, cumulative survivals are only slightly improved between these groups, between K2s and K1s. K2s are hovering around 0.5, whereas K1s are 0.47. So what's important to note about the Kaplan-Meier results is if you've read Robert Gailey's original study for the amputee mobility predictor, he observed that as K-level decreased, comorbidity index scores increased, which suggests that patients with lower K-levels potentially have greater health issues. And that makes a lot of sense. Exactly. When you present it that way. Mm-hmm. Were there any unanticipated surprises in your findings? And if so, can you explain them? Absolutely. Initially, seeing obesity associated with a decrease in mortality at five years, it seems counterintuitive. Most people would be familiar with their health detriments associated with obesity. However, this comes down to the idea of the body mass index. This is what was used to calculate and to check to see if they had obesity. The body mass index does not account for an individual's body composition. In other words, you're more or less looking, in a sense, at the ratio of muscle mass to body fat. So from the perspective of the body mass index, a muscular and athletic individual would technically be considered obese by their weight alone. Couple that with the fact that a lot of the information, as I mentioned before, is self-reported. So self-reported information tends to be inaccurate. Finding out that Latino individuals having a, a higher risk of death at one year post-amputation was surprising. Again, they were 5.5 times more likely to die. After doing some research and, and trying to get an explanation for this, I found an article and cited it by uh, Jihad Afa, and he's, he and his team seemed to paint some sound reasoning. His team observed that African-American and Hispanic populations tended to have a higher mortality risk than Caucasians because they were more likely to have both hypertension and diabetes mellitus while also coming from lower income areas. So it's likely that they were not seeking medical treatment for these systemic conditions until they became more severe and they warranted absolute care. The quantity of the comorbid conditions not influencing mortality rates, that was an interesting find. I think that the assumption would be, this patient has osteoarthritis, a heart condition, diabetes mellitus, the list goes on. They must be pretty unhealthy. But the results actually demonstrated otherwise. You also have to consider the comorbid condition that you're examining. So not all conditions documented could be considered lethal, quote unquote, for example, back pain, right? Although you could make the argument that if their back pain influences their decision to use a prosthesis, just due to the inability to tolerate their pain, they're not going to benefit from weight-bearing activities. They're not going to be moving around exercising, right? However, if you're looking at systemic conditions, like end-stage renal disease, heart disease, stroke, COPD. These are conditions that influence mortality rates in populations whose individuals have amputations. The other possible explanation for quantity not influencing mortality rates could be the severity of the comorbidities from the evaluation data. A prosthetist's scope of practice is not to assess these conditions to the extent of a physician. We don't do the lab work. We, we don't evaluate it to that degree. The comorbid conditions, yes. They were documented in the medical record, but they weren't indexed. They weren't rated in a way to communicate how severe the condition may be. 
that's not to say that quantity hasn't been observed, though, to play a role in patient death. Uh, an article I cited from Morton Christensen found that increased comorbidity quantity was significant for their patient population, but the conditions were end-stage renal disease and heart failure. Did you encounter any notable problems in the course of your study? And if so, what would you have done differently there? Yes, absolutely. Let's just start by saying that no study will ever be perfect. That's a given. All right. I would have liked to have gotten a better sense of whether a patient's K levels were seen to improve or deteriorate over time. The study relied on paramedical records. There was no way to ascertain if the comorbidities reported were coming from physician health records or they were just patient reported. If an obesity diagnosis had not been calculated using the BMI, it unfortunately would have only relied on, sadly to say, visual assessment alone. The offices did not perform a, a body mass index calculation at either the initial evaluation or follow-ups. So there's definitely an opportunity to under-report an additional comorbidity. As I said before, VOPA was an electronic form, and the BMI is a relatively basic calculation. So I believe that integrating a function that calculates the BMI would be fairly easy for VOPA to, to accomplish. I used the reported K levels but unfortunately did not have the raw scores of the AMP to assess. Again, with the AMP being arguably someone new to the clinic's practice, I would be curious to see if once more data has been collected, how the mortality rates would vary when compared with the actual scores. I mentioned before about uh, excluding patients with private insurance. And again, this is just purely due to my inability to access their information. I'm not sure if these databases even recorded data, to be honest. However, it would be interesting to examine as it would have opened up possibly several hundreds of records to investigate. A heart condition mentioned before was actually several conditions grouped together. It's likely that this could have had a greater influence on the results that were shown for heart condition and mortality. I would be curious what could be found out if we had looked at the specific heart conditions, but the trade-off to that as I said previously, is that when you start to introduce a greater number of covariate conditions, it can skew the model's results in unexpected ways. So there's a trade-off. With the Kaplan-Meier plot, again, I mentioned the, the concept of censoring, right censoring in particular, 66.7% of the individuals didn't meet the event of interest. So it's not certain that they're alive or not. Ideally, to combat this, some form of follow-up would help to clear this up. Again, they were just marked as alive based on the access of the MyCGS database and not necessarily checked up on with a formal follow-up. And this was purely due to time constraints, honestly, more than anything. So for the benefit of the practitioners who are listening into this podcast, what do you feel are the main clinical takeaways of your study? I would say that end-stage renal disease and heart disease can have significant health consequences in the first year of amputation for patients. And it goes without saying, it should be taken very seriously by both the patient and their prosthetist. Uh, part of the patient-clinician relationship is recognizing the seriousness of these conditions and helping to encourage patients to adopt and make better lifestyle choices. We have to try our best. Our role should help to dissuade these already serious conditions from progressing into debilitating diseases or potentially developing new comorbid conditions. A patient's activity level 
and their corresponding K-level implies that goals driven toward K-level improvement may increase their survival and reduce the outcome of mortality. So having experience in this area now, do you have any recommendations for future research directions based on your work? I would be very curious to see how a patient's K-level improves or deteriorates over time after their initial amputation. But what I would suggest, use the raw AMP scores. I feel it would provide more detailed information. For example, what is someone with no comorbidities and a score of 20 look like versus someone with a score of 30 that has end-stage renal disease and has heart disease? I would also like to know how do the results of this study compare to those with private insurance, honestly? How do their mortality rates differ from Medicare patients? Maybe they have access to services that Medicare patients don't, and does that have an effect? And I like to conclude every interview by asking, would you like to acknowledge any funding you received to conduct this study? <laughs> Other than my previous salary from my former employer, I have no external funding to declare. Excellent work, Max. This was a really interesting study, and I think you really got into the details here and provided some fabulous information for everyone to think about. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. So we've come to the end of our podcast, so I'd like to thank Mr. Kruger for sharing his insights and discussing his research with us today. I'd like to remind everyone that if you would like additional information on this project, you can access the full article about this study in the Journal of Prosthetics and Orthotics. Thank you again for joining us for this episode of ONP Research Insights, presented by the American Academy of Orthodox and Prosthetics. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Please plan to join us again next month for the Academy's ONP Research Insights podcast, when we'll be hosting another author and discussing their recent JPO article. And don't forget to check out the Academy's other podcasts for ONP professionals. ONP Clinical Insiders, a podcast created for conversations on specific areas of clinical care, and the award-winning ONP Rising, a podcast created for emerging professionals in our industry.